Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to this episode of the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we jump into this episode, I'd like to share a few things with you. The December and last Dr. GPCR newsletter of 2020 is now available. If you haven't subscribed yet, please visit drgpcr.com newsletter. Also, don't forget to share the newsletter with your colleagues. We cannot wait to bring you brand new Dr. GPCR newsletter editions in 2021. Second, we will be taking a short break of the Dr. GPCR podcast in January 2021 as our family will be welcoming a baby boy. But rest assured, we are already working on bringing you brand new episodes starting sometimes in February 2021 with an amazing lineup of guests. Also, stay tuned for a major announcement regarding the podcast. We're also proud to announce that we are pursuing consulting opportunities in the GPCR field. For help with your R&D project, please visit drgpcr.com consulting or reach out by email at hello at drgpcr.com. And last but not least, we will be closing this first season of the Dr. GPCR podcast with a series of interviews with phenomenal female scientists in the field. We hope you'll enjoy it. Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Yamina Bashish, founder of Dr. GPCR. Welcome to another episode of the Dr. GPCR podcast. Today, I have the honor of having as a guest Dr. Ching Fan. Uh, she's an associate professor of pharmacology and pathology and cell biology at Columbia University in the best city in the world, New York City. Welcome. Thank you very much for your invitation. It's a great privilege for me to be on this podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm, I'm very happy that I get to talk to you. And today we're going to talk about a class of GPCRs uh, of which we haven't talked about yet on the podcast. So um, it's a great honor to have you. So can you please tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into working on GPCRs and what's your story as a scientist? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm a structural biologist, and so specifically I study the three-dimensional structures and or shapes of cell surface receptors. And we focus on how these receptors sense changes in their environment and then change their shapes accordingly to send signals into the cells. And um, I grew up in a family of um, scientists and engineers, so I was um, exposed to science at an early age. Um, while I did dream about other career paths as a child, um, I was ultimately drawn to the excitement of making discoveries about nature, and that's how I became a scientist. Um, as to GPCR, um, while I was a postdoctoral fellow in Dr. Wayne Hendrickson's lab, I studied the structure of a GPCR, the follicle-stimulating hormone receptor, and we solved the crystal structure of follicle-stimulating hormone bound to the extracellular domain of its receptor. We saw that the FSH and receptor complex formed dimers in the crystal. And so we performed some biochemical experiments to see whether the receptor formed dimers in solution as well. And we were also curious whether this receptor may function as dimer. Um, when I went through the literature on GPCR dimers, I learned about the first known obligatory GPCR heterodimer, and that's the GABA-B receptor. So I became interested in its structure as well as its impact on neurological and psychological diseases. So I chose this topic as my first independent project when I started my own lab. 
Oh, thank you for that. Yeah, the GABA, the GABA receptor is kind of, it's a really cool system that you need both of them expressed at the cell surface too, to get there and, and to be working there. Um, when was the first time that you really got introduced to GPCRs? I asked this from, from everybody. Yeah, um, that was when I joined um, Dr. Wayne Hendrickson's lab. Yeah, I worked on immune receptors as a graduate student. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, that's really cool. That's really cool. So you mentioned now the GABA-B receptors. Can we say that that is one of your favorite receptor, receptor dimers, or is, is the family C receptors are your favorite uh, GPCRs to work on? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm most interested in the class C family of GPCRs because they're less well studied than the class A receptors and, and their mechanisms of activation and regulation still remain largely unknown. So among these receptors, you're right, my favorite is still the GABA-B receptor since it was my first independent project and my lab has been working on it for more than a decade now. Wow. That's, that's really great. So what is the, the status of research on, on the GABA-B receptor? Um, so, um, yeah, so I think tremendous progress has been made in the GABA-B receptor field in recent years. And to describe that, I kind of want to also describe the difference between class A and class C GPCR. So that lays the background for our discussion. Um, as you know, most GPCRs such as rhodopsin belong to class A and they contain a seven helix transmembrane domain and can function as monomers. Um, the orthosteric ligand binding pockets of the class A receptors is located within the transmembrane domain. And agonist binding directly induces conformational changes among the transmembrane helices for receptor activation. In contrast, class C GPCRs are structural outliers among the GPCR superfamily. And they all possess a large extracellular domain in addition to the canonical seven helix transmembrane domain. So this extracellular domain is 500 to 600 amino acids long and contains the orthosteric agonist binding site. And another unique feature of this receptor, this family of receptors, is that they require dimerization for function. And so among the class C receptors, the metabotropic glutamate and calcium sensing receptors function as homodimers and the GABA-B and taste receptors function as heterodimers. So our work on GABA-B receptor is um, focused on its signaling transduction mechanism and how structural methods can be applied to understand these mechanisms. And specifically, we hope to address um, three main questions. One is how do these receptors interact to form a heterodimer? And how does the receptor recognize extracellular stimuli? And finally, how does the receptor become activated upon agonist binding? So in this field, um, uh, as I mentioned, um, significant progress has been made um, in the field in recent years. Um, and I think several milestones have been achieved since its first discovery by Dr. Bowery and colleagues in the 1970s. So in 1997, Dr. Bettler's group first isolated the GABA-B1 subunit using a high-affinity GABA-B antagonist. And this is followed by identification of the GABA-B2 subunit the following year by five groups simultaneously, including teams led by Dr. Butler, Dr. Marshall, Dr. Gerald, and Dr. Cornell, and um, Dr. O'Neill. GABA-B receptor then became the first known GPCR that requires heterodimerization for function. In 2010, Dr. Butler's group discovered that GABA-B receptor possesses auxiliary subunits named KCD molecules that modify the kinetics of its G-protein signaling. 
So in 2013, my lab solved the extracellular, extracellular domain structure of a GABA-B heterodimer in multiple functional states, specifically in the apoform BOM2N antagonist and BOM2N agonist. And this year, four groups presented structures of full-length or near-full-length human GABA-B receptor. And these include studies led by Dr. Gadi and Cherizov, Drs. Liu and Zhang, and Dr. Skiniotis, as well as our team. So together, these work presented inactive, active, and intermediate confirmations of the receptor. And all four studies made use of the single-particle cryo-EM technology. In our case, we worked with Dr. Yakim Frank and Dr. Oliver Clark here at Columbia University to solve a structure of GABA-B receptor in the inactive state. And one of our surprising findings is the discovery of a bulky phospholipid that occupied the internal cavity of each TM bundle. What's more was the expertise of Dr. Oliver Fing and um, his associate, Dr. Tongshen at UC Davis. We were able to use mass spectrometry to determine the exact identity of these two phospholipids. We also assigned one lipid to each GABA-B subunit based on the size difference of their head groups. Both lipids form extensive interactions with their respective um, receptor subunits. And this led us to propose that both are necessary structural components of the receptor and are important for receptor integrity and stability. But we also performed mutational analysis, which showed that loosening the binding of the lipid inside GABA-B2 subunit incurred an increase in receptor basal activity. And this suggests that the GABA-B2 bond lipid acts as a negative allosteric modulator, but more research, um, we, we believe more research should be done to characterize the functional impact of these lipids. And um, in addition, it has been long postulated that GABA-B receptor binds calcium ion as a positive allosteric modulator. And uh, with the help of Dr. Joseph Graziano and his associate, Dr. Vesna Slakovich, also here at Columbia, we finally confirmed that the calcium binding site is located adjacent to the GABA binding site in the interdomain groove of GABA-B1 subunit. And finally, we paid special attention to the heterodimer interface between transmembrane domains in the inactive structure. We notice a quartet of charged residues forming salt bridges between TM3 and TM5 helices of both subunits. And we refer to this, this motif as the intersubunit latch. And our mutational studies revealed that it's critical component of the receptor's inactive state and its disruption leads to constitutive receptor activity. So that summarizes what we believe is the current status. That is, that is amazing. Who would have thought that you, you had a lipid or lipids that could get into the receptor that would be essential components in the function of the receptor and also have these, these, uh, these bonds that would also modulate the function of the receptor? It, I think it's phenomenal. I first heard about GABA receptors at school, in class, at university. And to be honest, up until I spoke to you, my knowledge was stopped at the fact that you needed both partners to get to the cell surface and to signal. And I was very excited to talk to you because uh, I figured it would be a very good opportunity for me and but also for the listeners to learn more about these fascinating receptors. So thank you for that. It's really an awesome, awesome uh, 
finding. And I think it's it it'll it'll help also uh, get more people excited about working on on the GABA B receptors. Definitely. Yeah, that's great. And also, I want to emphasize this is the result of teamwork. We have uh, many authors on the team, um, people who are in my lab and in the collaborators lab. Um, it's their work that made this possible. Absolutely. And, and science is a team effort. So I think it's a phenomenal proof that you need a team effort. You need people from different backgrounds who can put their heads together. And when they do, they come like together like, like a dimer when you think about it. <laughs> And yes. just, you know, get information on signal transduction, on structural components. But I think the lipid component and the calcium component are also very novel and very interesting. And I guess hard to also study. So you had to set up, you know, tools and, and methods and also all the brain power to, to get this information. Thank you. I totally oh. agree. Thank you so much. So, um, uh, I have a question uh, regarding so this inf the structural information that we you got and the the, the need for it, for that lipid for the lipids to be embedded in the receptor. What do you know? What are the functional consequences? Or in a more disease state area, what did that, what does it mean? Um, well, our we think further studies are obviously needed, but based on what we currently know, we think they play two roles. One is um, as an essential structural component and second as functional modifier. Um, so far we've identified one mutation in the GABA-B bond lipid that seems to um, indicate that it's a negative allosteric modulator. We would like to perform more thorough mutagenesis of both lipids and lipid binding sites to determine exactly how uh, each lipid functions and whether they have um, different um, specific functions that's specific to their subunits. And this could be also very important when it comes to the disease areas that are involved. Yeah. Right, so because some of the genetic mutations of associated with GABA-B receptor um, are found in GABA-B2, I think um, there are mutations that are related to RET syndrome. And so these are located within the transmembrane domain and how they relate to lipid binding, for instance, could be an ex area that we need to explore and identify um, you know, the functional role of these lipids in disease states. Wow, wow. And, and be, having this flexibility somewhat to modulate the receptor function is it's just phenomenal. And it's a quote-unquote a natural uh, way of doing it. So you mentioned uh, a disease in which a GABA-B mutation is involved. And what are the disease areas that are involved with, with, in the context of GABA-B receptors? And how can we better understand these disease areas? Right, so um, GABA-B receptor is found to play a role in various neurological and psychological diseases, including epilepsy, spasticity, pain, and addiction. And, um, and gabaclofen, a selective agonist of the receptor, is the only FDA-approved drug targeting GABA-B receptor. And, and it is used to treat muscle spasticity in patients with multiple sclerosis and spinal cord injury. And then baclofen, unfortunately, has multiple uh, undesirable um, side effects, including drowsiness and weakness. Um, so an alternative approach to um, target GABA-B receptor could focus on allosteric modulator site, for example, that are located in the transmembrane domain and may provide direct targeting of um, genetic mutations. That's phenomenal because it goes directly on in, in, uh, in hand in hand 
with the work that you're currently doing, which is, which is great. So um, you, you've worked in a team setting to get uh, more and more information on understanding the function and the structural components that determine the function of GABA-B receptors. Uh, and what are your some tools or initiatives that could help to better understand this receptor um, you know, in a lab setting, but also in a disease setting. Yes, um, I understand. So um, I think it would be beneficial to resolve structures of known disease causing isoforms. Currently, we usually look at um, high resolution model and hypothesize how a substitution, deletion or insertion can change the structure and interrupt the normal function of a receptor. Sometimes we validate these hypotheses through molecular dynamics. But resolving their structures, um, I believe, would give us more concrete information to work with. And I think more attention could be given to these disease isoforms since people who are born with genetic abnormalities are at a greater need for therapies and ligands that act um, on normal receptors may not be as effective um, as on impaired receptors. So being able to study these isoforms with similar detail as the wild type receptors may help advance precision medicine. That is phenomenal. And uh, can you tell us more about this, these mutations mm -hmm. uh, that occur in patients? Are there a single amino acid mutations? Yeah, yeah the, there are no single amino acid mutation in GABA-B2 that are related to RET syndrome and to epileptic um, and encephal, sorry, and encephalopathy. Wow, wow. Yeah, hopefully, I think it, 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 it is definitely the best way to go around it, to having the tools and the ability to generate crystal structures very quickly. I mean, last month, uh, we compiled uh, over 10 papers that were published that, that uh, were about crystal structures of different receptors, including the GABA-B uh, receptors, which is very far away from, you know, the first time, the first, from what, from 20 years ago when we were happy to get one crystal structure yes. from time to time. And having that information, and to your point, having the crystal structure information of a mutated receptor that is involved in a disease state is very important to have. Developing the tools also in, um, in the lab to understand the function of these mutated receptors is also important, but also having proper models, uh, for example, animal models, or being able to test uh, in, in tissues that express chronically um, these, these mutations will also be helpful to kind of put these, the way I see it is like beads on, 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 um, on a necklace where you have all these beads together. And with all of this information, then we can better, better target these receptors in the context of all these um, diseases. So obviously, the answer to my next question, which is, do you think GPCRs are still good drug targets, is yes. Yeah. Can you please uh, elaborate your thoughts on targeting GPCRs? Sure. I think that's a, a very interesting question, and it's a great question. Um, I, like you said, I definitely believe that GPCRs are still good drug targets. Um, you know, we all know that GPCRs are involved in cell signaling, and alterations in their function are often associated with disease states, and that already make them good drug targets. 
But the main reason I think they still um, provide um, targets for drug discovery is because they constitute, um, because they, their structures contain multiple druggable sites. And these include the orthosteric and allosteric ligand binding sites, as well as interfaces between the receptor and downstream signaling molecules or regulatory proteins. So targeting the allosteric sites, um, for instance, appears to be a promising approach since it may provide more specificity and gently effect, gentler effects. Mm -hmm. GABA-B receptor is limited to the GIO signaling pathway, but other GPCRs are known to couple with different sets of G proteins or multiple signaling pathways, depending on factors such as the bond ligand, G protein availability, and cell type. One of the class C receptors, the calcium sensing receptor, can activate multiple different um, G proteins. Um, and ligands that display biased signaling property may serve as highly specific drug candidates. And this feature opens um, more room for selecting a specific effect without also interfering with other cell processes. And this approach may also, this approach may also provide uh, a means to avoid undesirable side effects. An example is a recent drug discovery effort targeting the mu opioid receptor that was published in 2016 and by a team led by Dr. Kabilka, Dr. Gminer, Dr. Roth, and Dr. Shokat. And they identified a compound that confers analgesia by selectively activating the G protein signaling pathway, but the compound is devoid of the side effects of current opioids, including respiratory depression, because it does not signal through the beta arrestin pathway. So that illustrates that um, there's still a lot more that can be done to, um, to target GPCRs for drug design. Definitely, definitely. And the good thing is that the more structures we can get, the more information we can get on the activation of the receptors, but also we can understand their function and uh, identifying allosteric sites requires also the structural component yeah. to understand how that works. Um, as for biased ligand, it's still, I think, a viable route. Um, however, as, as you know, and as the audience also knows, in the recent years, it has been shown that it's not as clear-cut, black or white, as we would have thought for biased ligands, but still understanding um, what, what pathway we would want to, for example, fine-tune, yes. or not necessarily you know, activate one but not the other, but kind of fine-tune uh, like a like a volume button sure. to activate a specific pathway to get the desired effect of the drug, but not or limit the side effects is still a great way of of approaching drug discovery. But for that, uh, we need more information on the disease state, on for example, people living with a chronic disease for over I don't know ten fifteen years. Their in their cellular environment, their bodies must be different. Than, than a healthy person, but I think it's still a really great avenue to explore potentially having agonist antagonist uh, as drugs, but also allosteric modulators, which offer a phenomenal potential. And obviously, the um, biased bias ligands could also be a great way to um, to to go. Oops, I'm sorry. Just one second. To go this way, um, definitely. Sorry, I had a 
little mishap. My desk just fell off. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, but I, I got it. I got it. It's okay. We can continue. We love our GPC here, so we're going to continue no matter what. <laughs> are, um, you okay? are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm fine. Um, so as we had talked about previously, so we were talking about, uh, what is available right now to better target GPCRs and what we need. Uh, is there any other key information that you think we're missing to help us speed up drug discovery? Um, well, as you mentioned, I, I think we need more full length structures of all GPCRs in different ligand bond activation states and effector complexes to provide an accurate templates for better drug design. And CryoEM is allowing structural biologists to rapidly increase our productivity and provide long awaited information that the field can finally incorporate. And so I think we should be able to expand our library of knowledge greatly in the coming years. And this may usher a new generation of drugs that can better suit individual needs and also come with less side effects. Wow. Yes, I, I look forward to, to that era when we go. <laughs> very quickly get a structure and very quickly analyze yeah. you know, the function and then move directly into, a, you know, for example, a mouse study and then get the drugs out as soon as possible to, to help as many, uh, you know, treat as many diseases as, as possible. Thank you for that. Um, this is the third uh, segment of, of, our, of our talk and I asked this from, from everyone. So you had a phenomenal uh, career and you've been working with so many people to better understand the function of the GABA-B receptors and class C receptors in general, what would be your advice to uh, young scientists or junior scientists who would want to contribute to the field? Yeah, I would advise young scientists to follow their interest and to work on projects that they're passionate about um, and not simply projects that may attract more funding. <laughs> That's because their passion will keep them going even when they encounter difficulties, um, you know, when things are not going well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, 90% of the time experiments fail and that one time when it's 10 p.m. and no one is around and you're happy, that's when it works. So definitely you need that, uh, that passion to, to get through all the, the failures that you go through uh, as a scientist in the lab. Um, any, any other advice? Or this, this would be the main... I think this is the, main, the key. I think the, the passion, the interest will pretty much drive the motivation and um, the hard work. Agreed. And, and people can also uh, relate to it and feel it when, when you talk yes. about something that you're passionate yes. about. Yeah. Um, so we talked a little bit about the GABA-B receptors and all the discoveries that, that you made with, with your collaborators. Were there any moments... Uh, in your career as a scientist that you could qualify as aha moments that kind of shaped your vision on, on the work that you're doing? Yes, yes. Um, well, first, uh, when I was um, a beginning graduate student, I attended open houses held by different professors in order to choose a lab um, for my thesis work. Um, I heard a talk given by Dr. Don Wiley on the structure of human major histocompatibility antigens, and these structures revealed for the first time how MHC molecules present antigen peptides using a peptide binding groove. And furthermore, each um, MHC molecule could bind peptides of different sequences through pockets in the groove that recognize specific anchor residues of the peptides. And this groundbreaking discovery illustrated how foreign antigens are presented by MHC molecules to T cells to trigger an immune response. 
I was so in awe of his work that I decided on the spot to join his lab for my graduate studies. Wow. Yeah. Just one presentation and that did it all. And um, well, the second moment would be um, uh, related to crystallography as a method. So um, um, it used to be a quite laborious process to solve a complete unknown crystal structure because of the phase problem. And the method um, used most often is called the multiple isomorphous replacement. And it involves introducing heavy atoms into a protein crystal by soaking or co-crystallization. And extensive screening is usually required to identify a heavy atom derivative of the sample. Dr. Wayne Hendrickson developed the multi-wavelength um, multi anomalous diffraction method that takes advantage of the anomalous X-ray scattering property of certain atoms within the protein. And the most popular way of incorporating anomalous scattering atoms into a protein is to produce its selenomethionine analog. This method provides a novel approach for solving a phase problem that no longer requires screening of heavy atom derivatives. And the first crystal structure I solved as a graduate student used the MET method, and I did it together with a postdoctoral scientist, Dr. Lydia Mossack in the Wiley lab. I very much admired Dr. Wayne Hendrickson's work, so I chose to conduct my postdoctoral training in his lab. Wow. Yeah. And finally, um, my third aha moment is the recent resolution revolution in cryo-EM, um, and that was built upon the foundation established by the 2017 Nobel laureates, Dr. Joachim Frank, Dr. Richard Henderson, and Dr. Jacques um, Dubochet. And this advance in technology made it possible to solve the structures of many membrane proteins that so far have not been amenable to crystallization. So we and others have used this technique to solve the structures of GPCRs. Um, and in our case, um, I mentioned we collaborated with Dr. Joachim Frank and Dr. Oliver Clark to determine the cryo-EM structure of GABA-B receptor. And when we first started, we also obtained help from Dr. Richard Henderson. Phenomenal, phenomenal. I think cryo-EM revolution has definitely changed the way we, we acquire and the speed at which we acquire uh, data on, on, on crystal structures for, for GPCRs, definitely. Um, I have two last questions before uh, I thank you for, for your time. So um, what do you think about diversity in the field and how do you think we can address that to increase diversity uh, in the field? Um, well, I think to increase diversity, maybe we can create more mentoring opportunities for women and minority at all career stages. I personally found uh, workshops where, um, you know, a panel of senior scientists hold questions and answer sessions to be particularly helpful because you get to listen to questions from others as well. Um, and in addition, I think grants that are geared toward improving diversity representation may help. And overall, I think things are going in the right direction since many universities or departments are now um, recruiting female and minority, um, minority for faculty and even chair positions. So I think we're certainly improving. We're, we're improving and you touch on a very important point, mentorship, which is important at all levels, especially for, for junior scientists. Um, because they're junior, they may not have that uh, confidence yet yes, to right. go after what they're looking for and having a good mentor who would tell you no no who would be in your kind of in your camp and help you you know uh, get out there 
and propose ideas that you know are, may not be mainstream but still could be interesting is very a, a very valuable thing to have. Yes, I agree. Thank you for that. So last uh, but not least, uh, I ask this from everyone. If you have any job openings uh, mm. in your team, usually where do you advertise these jobs? Before I let you answer, I wanted to let you and um, the audience also know that we do have a career page where we invite everyone to submit uh, their job their job description. So it's drgpcr.com slash career. The goal is to uh, kind of have a directory, kind of a yellow pages for, for GPCR related jobs, whether they're industry or whether they're academic positions. Uh, we want everyone in the field to feel comfortable and go on the page and look, hopefully find their, their right match job-wise. Well, thank you very much for asking and for letting me know about that uh, resource. Um, yeah, right now we're basically posting job openings on our lab website, but I think um, anyone who might be interested in our work um, should just directly email me uh, to inquire about positions. That's probably the easiest way. Phenomenal. Um, at the uh, once when this podcast is launched, it will come with a web page specific to this podcast and. In the, at the top of it, we will share the link to your website, any potential links where people can find you. That way, it will be the easiest way to, to get in touch with you. And uh, I think you're not the only one. Everyone I spoke to says just send an email. And this is to all the young junior scientists. Just send the email. The worst that can happen is that you don't get a response. But I'm pretty sure that everyone I spoke to will respond. Just be patient. Go out there and, and send an email. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jen, for being here today. I really appreciate our discussion. We learned a lot about GABA receptors and family C receptors. Uh, we wish you the best uh, in, the, in the future. And please keep in touch. Yeah, thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd like to thank our guest, Attila Forrest, Jin Chong, and Shivani Sajdev. Music by Rosa Bershish. I'm your host, Dr. Yamina Bershish. We're always excited to hear from you. Visit us at drgpcr.com or send us a note at hello at drgpcr.com. I also wanted to wish you happy holidays and a very happy new year. I'd like to thank this year's guests and thank you for being such a wonderful audience. Thank you again for the privilege of your time and until next time, stay safe.